travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Welcome to Talk Travel Asia, episode 98, Southeast Asia's Wild Side with Patrick Wynn. Many countries in Southeast Asia have a sordid and fabled reputation. From movies about mercenaries trying to flee POW camps in the jungles of Vietnam to novels of colonialism and forbidden love, the region has served as a backdrop for more than a few of the world's great tales and legends. Some true, others not so much. On this episode, we'll chat with American journalist, radio broadcaster, and documentarian Patrick Wynn about his life covering truly wild sides of life in one of the world's most colorful corners. From Bangkok, Thailand, this is Scott Coates, and with me as always is... Trevor Ranges here in rainy Cambodia. How are you doing today, Scott? I am doing good, and I'm the opposite of rainy. It is about 36 smoking degrees here, but happy to uh, get this episode. This is a neat one. Yeah, and for those listening uh, who might be a little bit confused, last episode was episode 99 and this one's 98 just because sometimes we have some challenges lining up guests and coordinating Scott's and my schedules. So this mm. is sort of episode 99. We're going to get to 100 here soon, uh, but I think yep. we have a great guest on tonight. Uh, Scott, what were some of your first impressions about uh, the wild side of Asia before you came over this way? Yeah, before I moved here in 99, and I guess I first came through, I think in 95, was, you know, kind of what I'd seen in like Chuck Norris missing in action and Rambo First Blood Part 2, maybe Good Morning Vietnam was, I don't you know, just sort of thatched huts and maybe some violence and, and really un, undeveloped and underdeveloped. You know, I didn't think it was the same as the Vietnam War period, but I certainly just kind of semi-chaotic. How about you? Yeah, you know, you know, growing up as a kid in the 70s, obviously the Vietnam War was something that we were all aware of. And then, you know, mm -hmm. those Rambo movies were kind of about that era. And they did a couple of James Bond films in Thailand. Uh, but for me, most, right. of my, yeah, most of my childhood was, uh, you know, looking at pictures of surf breaks in Indonesia and Philippines when I was a little grommet, like looking at surf mags and dreaming of these exotic faraway lands. So for me, Southeast Asia was more of this exotic surf destination uh, than, than anything else. I didn't really have a picture of what Bangkok might have been or, or any of these other locations around the region. Yeah, it uh, was a shock to me and a pleasant one because it certainly was more developed even when I moved here in 99 than it is today. Well, before we really get into this thing, let's just remind all of you that are enjoying listening to this that Trevor and I uh, cover all the costs to make this happen, and it does add up. So uh, we'd really love some financial love. So if you go to our website, TalkTravelAsia.com, on the left side of the screen, there's a button, Donate. Click it. It'll take you to Patreon.com, and you can support the show from a dollar a month or more, and it really does help keep the show going. A shout out to some of our patrons, especially Terry Blackburn, who's been sponsoring at the $25 a month Big Kahuna level. Thanks so much, Terry, and everybody that sponsors, as well as Patrick Alaspa, I hope I said that properly, and Austin Clinton, who've been supporting at $5 a month. So thanks so much from that. So should we uh, bring in our guest, Trevor? Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. 
Originally from North Carolina in the United States, Patrick Wynn has called Southeast Asia home for more than a decade. A professional journalist, he's produced pieces for the New York Times, BBC Radio, NBC News, the Times of London, and many more. He joins us via Skype from Bangkok. Hi there, Patrick. How's it going, Scott? It's going really well, and it's kind of funny because we usually use technology like Skype to connect, you know, inter-country, but you and I are actually sitting about like three kilometers apart from one another. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, we're going to pretend like we're in the in the same room. Yeah. And seriously funny that we realized just a moment ago that we lived about 100 meters from one another for years and never met and we have common friends. But anyway, it will happen face to face one of these days. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Well, we always like to start, you know, at the beginning uh, with our guests. So what first led you to Southeast Asia and when did you come? Uh, I came here in the summer of 2008. The reason that I'm in Thailand is because my then girlfriend, now wife, is half Thai, mm-hmm. half American. She's a okay. journalist as well. Uh, we met in my home state of North Carolina working at the same newspaper. Uh, she was a photographer there. I was a beat reporter. Um, obviously, the newspaper industry has collapsed. We saw that coming and thought, Mm -hmm. let's get the hell out of here. And so it was a homecoming for her coming back to Bangkok. And for me, it was my first time ever coming to Thailand. Uh, Immediately got set up with a journalist visa, started Hmm. freelancing and began the uh, bizarre, strange and sometimes difficult life of a foreign correspondent. Right. Well, that's real neat. And of course, I mean, your wife's half Thai, so Thailand was the natural place to come. I mean, how long did it take until you felt like, yeah, this is it. I'm not just here for a little while. This is home. I moved here knowing that it was going to be at least a semi-permanent move. Um, I I sometimes hear other people who've moved to Thailand talk about an adjustment period or a difficult first six months getting used Mm -hmm. to just the flavors the atmosphere, the the jarring sense of being so far from home. I experienced none of that. From the first hmm. day, I was extraordinarily excited to be here. Um, a really insatiably curious person. And Bangkok in particular is a feast for anyone who is curious. I just wanted to throw myself into figuring it all out. And I'm not I'm still not sure if I've figured everything out. In fact, I'm quite positive I haven't. So it still holds a lot of interest for me. I, when I moved here almost 20 years ago, I met a British guy who'd been here almost 20 years then. And he said, I leave my house every day, not really knowing what I'm going to see next. So I don't think you or I are ever going to figure it out, Patrick. I don't want to. I don't want to. I, I, don't, I don't ever want to reach the point where I feel like it all just perfectly clicks together because that's when life becomes boring. Indeed. So, I mean, uh, I had, I've listened to a podcast with you uh, that we mentioned earlier in the intro, and I've had a look through your website and some other stuff. You tend to write about some pretty fringe subjects that I don't think are really covered elsewhere. Was your reporting kind of always geared that way, or did it evolve over your time here? At some point, um, maybe five, six years ago, I realized that my reporting had taken on certain themes and it was not intentional, but those themes were Mm -hmm. uh, largely revolving around the world of crime, often organized crime, people doing things they weren't supposed to be doing. And I found that when I looked back over all the stories that I'd done, yeah, it was often a lot of people breaking the law, um, drugs, vigilantes, um, jihadis, and 
Mm. That, that was the point I realized, oh, okay, I, I've chosen a theme without having consciously chosen it and started to um, present myself in that way. You know, um, hey, I'm Patrick Wynn. I'm a reporter. I'm a radio journalist. I do documentaries. Um, and I tend to focus on organized crime. I started kind of slotting myself into that, into that position. Right. Well, before we go too much further down the rabbit hole, I mean, uh, take a spin for listeners through patrickwinonline.com and we have links on our show notes. But can you kind of quickly walk us through your career? Like when you got here, did you start working for a proper paper? Or how have you ended up becoming kind of what seems like a one man show of king of all media in Thailand almost? <laughs> oh, not quite. But um, yeah, when I when I first got here, I had a contract to file for a news agency that no longer exists called Global Post and I okay. was there I was their man in Thailand. I, I quickly realized and I was also freelancing for other places as well, LA Times um, and okay. places like that. So I realized that you can't hack it as a freelance journalist or even a solid employed journalist just focusing on Thailand. Not if you're doing mm -hmm. stories for the the Western market and had to broaden you know, my, my expertise to the entirety of Southeast Asia. So I started slowly chipping away at Laos and Cambodia and Burma and the Philippines until I, you know, now I have a really um, complex network of sources in, in many, many countries around the region. So um, Global Post was, uh, acquired by Public Radio International, and that's who I'm with now. So I'm the Asia correspondent okay. for... Um, the, the way that it will make sense to listeners is there is a show that airs on NPR stations in the afternoons in the States called The World, and you'll hear me there. <laughs> that's my main game. All right. Very cool. Well, I mean, this is a travel podcast. We're focusing mainly on journalism here. But as a person, what, what do you love about Southeast Asia? I'll go back to just saying that the my curiosity is insatiable and the number of subjects in which to just like plunge into seems never ending. Um, so, you know, Thailand, Myanmar, these are the countries I focus on the most. I just mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've ceased to grow bored of them. And in my travels, I continue to meet people with really compelling stories that make me think someone has to properly convey the story to a wider audience. The story just can't stay in this guy's village uh, or in this person's part of their city. So mm. I have this extraordinary drive to just to want to tell those stories, to get them out there because, um, I mean, not to get too pie in the sky, but I, I think that it really is provides a net good for the world. Uh, I'm from a a small town and most of the people I grew up around never got the opportunity to travel. So they're not going to have access to some of the places I can go. I'm, I'm really quite lucky and privileged that I've been able to hack it this long. And so I want to bring people to the places that I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to, to venture to. All right. Well, I mean, you write about a really wide variety of subjects. I mean, from how plastic waste is impacting our environment to war elephants in, in northern Myanmar. <laughs> I mean, how do you find your stories? Are you getting it through other media or just by cruising around countries? Or how do, how do you find these things? That's a good question. Yeah, there's no one answer. I, I definitely keep 
a notepad on me uh, almost at all times. And if a thought occurs to me, I'll very quickly jot it down. I need okay. to look into this. I'd say about 50% of the time it goes nowhere. Um, obviously, I'm reading the, the the domestic press in all of these mm-hmm. countries. So I'm reading the English language papers in Burma. I'm reading the English language press in Thailand, such that it is, <laughs> and the Thai press as well. And just, you know, it might be one line in a story in a totally different paper. I'm just like, mm, okay. there's more there. There's more there. The good thing is, you know, now I've been here long enough that there's people I can call and talk to, people that trust me, people that I trust, who are sort of co-producers on these stories. Because I can't do any of this solo. I, I work with people right. to, to find these sources. And I can chat it out with them and they can say, yeah, that's that's probably nothing. Or, hey, I'd, I'd like to work with you on that and, and take it from there. Okay, cool. Well, I, I've noticed that you've done quite a few stories uh, in Myanmar and about Myanmar, again, from the war elephants in the Kachin state, you know, to rape used against the Rohingya and uh, child labor. I mean, what attracts you to writing about that country? Myanmar, to me, is it's astonishing to me that it's considered one country. And we, we can thank mm-hmm. the, the British Empire for that, for just drawing a line around multiple civilizations and saying, you're all one country now. Um, of course, right. you can see something similar happening in India and other countries. So the fact that that happened has just primed that country for conflict. I mean, it's never fit together cohesively as a single country. And so where there's conflict, there's a lot of human drama. Um, mm-hmm. Where there's conflict, I think, you know, we have an obligation to pay attention. I just, I, Myanmar is a country, you know, I talk about never really fully understanding Thailand. Myanmar is a country mm-hmm. that uh, I'll never fully grasp because you would have to really grasp about seven different countries to really get it. And you can go think about Myanmar as, as you know, you've got the foothills of the Himalayan mountains up north and it goes all the way down to the Bay of Bengal. And there's so much interesting things happening at all points in between. So right. I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll never get bored of, of traveling in Myanmar and writing about its people. Yeah, I'm always amazed by the diversity. Like you said, it borders the Himalayas down to the Andaman Sea. Like, that's mm. pretty diverse. Um, having read some of your stories there, I mean, are, are you still able to enter Myanmar or are you banned? <laughs> I'm not banned. I went there recently. Um, I okay. never know if that is going to happen. Um, if I ever do get banned, then I would have to shift towards focusing on the hinterlands of Myanmar. And there's ways that you can get there. Um, you can get to places that are effectively quasi-sovereign states run by rebel groups, you know, with their own hospitals, their own schools, their own okay. military force. And there's ways to get there that's more difficult than just flying in. Um, I already mostly focus on, you know, rebel groups in Myanmar, the drug trade in Myanmar. So that's where my focus is already. But of course, I mean, if, if they wanted to hurt me, they could ban me and it would indeed mm. it would indeed hurt me. But um I was in Yangon just two weeks ago, so (laughs) I don't think I'm, frankly, I don't think that I'm on their radar and I don't think that I'm important. Um, I'm not, I'm not a game changer for them. Um, They seem, the the powers that be in Myanmar seem to be focused on uh, really high level media like Time Magazine, the New York Times. So everything that comes out of those outlets is read and dissected and reacted to. And my 
book and my appearances on the radio in the States, I'm not sure they care that much. Hmm. Okay. Very well. I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you. <laughs> Have you ever been arrested while reporting in this region? No, I've never been arrested. Uh, I've been followed, um, stopped. Uh, I have had nights where I was extraordinarily concerned about the people from those countries who were reporting with me. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about officers, plainclothes officers coming to your hotel. And um, and they don't necessarily hassle me. They're more interested in hassling the person who has the citizenship of that country because they can screw with them. For me, again, I have this um, extraordinarily extraordinary privilege in that if you do arrest me, it becomes a diplomatic incident. And the, right. the local cop in the middle of nowhere in Burma is – has a reflexive understanding that he might not want to get involved in that. But he also has a has an understanding that if I cause trouble up there, it comes back and makes him look bad. So, you know, mm. he that I've probably made uh, low-ranking officers in parts of Southeast Asia nervous many, many times without even knowing it. <laughs> Okay. Um, well, while we're on the, the topic of Myanmar, I noticed on your website that you served as a consultant for Anthony Bourdain on his Parts Unknown CNN show, notably the Myanmar episode. I mean, I, like many people, were huge Bourdain fans. What was it like working with him? Oh, it was great. Um, I, I learned a lot, I mean, from from working with them. So basically, I was, um, uh, the the more direct way to put it would be to say I was their fixer. So they wanted to go into Myanmar to film the debut episode of Parts Unknown. They found me, um, went there, hired some Burmese staff to work with me and tried to start figuring out who the characters would be on that show, where he should go eat, who he should talk to. And then the director came on a, a scout before Bourdain arrived and then okay. sort of locked everything in. So I worked very closely with him to make the episode what it was. Um, Anthony Bourdain was the guy you saw in the show. Uh, hmm. Grumpy sometimes, always had uh, insanely <laughs> just these really funny riffs. I mean, his mind was just on when it was on. And then I would, you know, we spent... 10 days there, I would see his mind turn off and he wouldn't necessarily want to be bothered. So I think you can kind of see that in the show. He's he's irascible sometimes and he's a genius at other times. But I will say this, if you watch that show, or probably any travel eating show, and you are under the impression that the host is just walking around and he or she is just randomly finding cool restaurants and they're really exploring it on their own. They're not. It's all heavily produced behind the scenes. They may only be there for three days and a director and a team on the ground, excuse me, is really coming up with a tight itinerary because they don't have time to waste while you go on a spirit quest. (laughs) I mean, sure, sure. Yeah, Yeah. You've got cinematographers making thousands of dollars per day. You've got all staff and vans and hotels and like they kind of have to show up and nail it even on a really high budget show like that 
Sure, sure. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, you know, I was having a, a look through your website a few nights ago, and, and one story really caught my attention, and that was how North Korean hackers became the world's greatest bank robbers. I mean, how did you get onto that story? Yeah, I, I, I love that story. I did that about a year ago. Um, okay, so that's a story that was actually widely reported in the South Korean press. Probably the New York Times got to it before I did and tended mm -hmm. to focus on the sort of Washington, D.C. aspects of it, um, the how it affects foreign policy, things like that. Um, I saw the story, which I'll just sum up very briefly. North Korea has some of the best hackers in the world, if not the best when it comes to pilfering and running heist on online reserves of currency. So they pulled off one of their bigger heists, uh, scoring almost a billion dollars when Whoa. they got some money in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York held on behalf of Bangladesh. So you have a poorer country like Bangladesh. They don't necessarily feel comfortable holding their assets on their computers. And okay. so they allow the New York Federal Reserve, another Federal Reserve bank, bank to hold it for them. North Korea got into that stash and looted it. So I thought, no, no, no. I want to tell this story as a bank robbing story because that's what it was. It was an incredible sure. heist. And I'm less interested in what the Secretary of State has to say about it. <laughs> you know, very cool. So listeners should really go to your website, which is off our uh, show notes and, and go read that story because it was really cool. Well, I mean, you have a book out right now. Hello, Shadowlands, Inside the Meth Fiefdoms, Rebel Hideouts and Bombs, Scarred Party Towns of Southeast Asia. We actually learned of you by listening to that podcast from the Carnegie Council. Um, can you tell us a bit about that book? Sure. So as I mentioned, I've been here more than 10 years. And at some point, probably about five years ago, I realized I had a lot of reporting on organized crime. And so I started to think of a way to thematically include that in, uh, in a book. So it includes profiles of criminals okay. in, um, in Vietnam, in southern Thailand, in Myanmar, in the Philippines, and what I'm doing is I'm going in and and showing you how they commit their crimes, why they commit their crimes, and I'm giving you their version of events. So if you if you read the you know everyday newspaper, criminals are often depicted as low lives. Um, they're often depicted as deranged, and that has always bothered me because I've met a lot of criminals and I've yet to meet any of them that are deranged. I mean, some of them have been scary, but they are mm -hmm. invariably motivated by um, logic and reason. I mean, they have a reason for doing the things they do. It might not be a great reason, and that reason might be greed, or it might be that their families have swept them into it, or it might be that they have justified hurting a stranger to help someone they love. So that's not a that's not a moral decision, but it is a decision that makes sense. And okay. so I wanted to bring people into the lives of vigilantes and drug traffickers um, and jihadis, even people who are uh, plotting bomb attacks in Thailand um, and show you what their lives are like. And so it has sort of an adventurous feel, but it's also very deeply rooted in in journalism. So these are these are real stories about real people that I've that I've met uh, over the last 10 years. 
Wow. Okay. What was the craziest spot or situation you experienced while working on the book? Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, two of the more uh, rattling experiences I've had actually didn't make it into the book. Mm-hmm. For, for the book, a story that's included in the book is, um, is uh, a bit sad. It's very sad, in fact. But in this border town called Sungai Galok, on the border of Thailand and Malaysia, has this thriving red light district in the middle of a broader area that's under an, as an Islamic insurgency, under a separatist campaign. And so mm-hmm. the insurgents have taken to targeting the red light district um, to drive out what they would see as a you know, Thai Buddhist impurity in their okay. homeland. They see it as unpious, the karaoke clubs, and, you know, the dodgy nightclubs and things like that. So while I was there reporting in 2014, um, there was a, a, a bombing spree in Sungai Galok. And very close to the hotel I was staying in, a woman was killed randomly by a bomb. They weren't trying to kill her. They were just trying to kill anyone that came by that street corner at the wrong time, sort of, right. sort of near the entertainment district. And the woman was killed. So I've I did the dumb journalist thing. I um, left my hotel and ran towards the the fire, and you know, um, it was uh, yeah, it was really unpleasant. And um, mm. not not the only time I've seen someone killed while reporting in Southeast Asia, but one that certainly sticks with me, and one I won't soon forget. Right. Wow. Wow. Well. Uh, look, uh, without sanctioning traveling deliberately to dangerous places, I mean, there are a number of travel shows out there now that kind of focus on that sort of stuff. And from your experience, let's say travelers are looking for something kind of really out there. Are there any spots from your book that you think are actually kind of worth visiting? Yeah, I really do. And I, I will say that on kind of a funny note that Sometimes I'll do a media hit and my sales rankings will go up on Amazon and I'll get popped into one of these categories, um, top travel books in Southeast Asia. (laughs) I always laugh. Ah. It's like, you can have a weird time if you use my book as a travel guide. Um, However, you know, if you go to places that are even quasi lawless that I profile in the book, um, Mm -hmm. let's talk about, you know... um, certain militia-run areas in in Myanmar even. The so op- like Kachin State or? Parts of Kachin State for sure, parts of Shan State, uh, rebel-run areas. You know, I think the odds that you are going to be, you know, heinously kidnapped are extraordinarily low. The mm-hmm. odds that you are going to get food poisoning are, are much higher. Um, the <laughs> things that scare people aren't necessarily the things that are actually going to hurt them. So I would, I did a lot of pretty intense reporting on the drug trade and uh, vigilante groups in uh, Michina, the capital of Kachin State in Myanmar or Burma. Right. Um, I would absolutely recommend that people go there. It's a, it's a lovely town. The Kachin people are awesome. They are extraordinarily welcoming and you should go. Uh, you should go to parts of Shan State. Um, I, I can't recommend that you go to certain rebel-controlled areas because, you know, 
you have to get permission. And if you're not there for a reason, right. my reason being that I'm a journalist, I'm not really sure why they would let you in. But I've had great meals there. I've met great friends there. I've been treated well. And at no time have I been worried, you know, that they would kidnap me and hold me for ransom. I've oh, right. I've been worried that I would eat the wrong thing and there's no hospital close by. That's about it. Sure. Yeah, I could see that being the bigger risk, probably. So when, when Patrick isn't working and he's not reporting, where do you enjoy traveling in the region just for fun and pleasure? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, if, if you just gave me a free ticket anywhere in Asia, I would go to Tokyo because it's utterly unlike what I do for work. Um, okay. I would just go drink good sake and see Japanese punk bands and hang out and do the Tokyo thing because it's, it's so distant from what I do for work. But closer to home, closer to Bangkok, I am a super, super fan of Mehongsan at the mm. far, far north of Thailand. I mean, I'm getting, I'm sure you get this too, Scott. You get people from back home saying, where should I go when I come to Southeast Asia, right? You especially, I'm sure, right. get that question. Um, so when I get that question from you know, old college buddies or old coworkers, I say, go to Mehongsan. No, 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 but I think we're going to go to Chiang Mai. Yeah, you're going to choke on the smog. Don't go to Chiang Mai. Go to Mehongsan. Yeah. Actually, you might choke in Mehongsan too, but it's it's not as, um, you know, Chiang Mai has become Bangkok light. I mean, it, the traffic's bad. It feels like a, yeah. a big, boisterous city. If you want to be in a big, crazy city, just stay in Bangkok. Uh, Maung San is this beautiful mountain retreat and totally underrated food. The the northern Thai food, especially all the way up on the Burmese border, is so unique and so good. <laughs> it just doesn't get its due. Mm. Yeah, I agree. It's it's really tasty up there. It's funny what you said. I used to work in uh, tour design and stuff, and people ask you where to go, and you tell them something like you said, Mehong Son, but they just want to go where their friends went so they can talk to their friends. You're kind of like, well, why did you ask me then? <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Right. So, I mean, you have won a ton of journalism awards. I was really amazed when I looked at your site. Which are you the most proud of? Probably the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award. Um, that's uh, an award given out by the family of Bobby Kennedy. And in receiving that award, what was that, 2013, I think, I was able to meet his widow, Ethel Kennedy. Okay. So, you know, in, in American politics, Bobby Kennedy um, has a massive profile, especially as a, a friend to the poor. Um, the, it, it's known as the poor man's Pulitzer, and I don't think I'm ever going to win a Pulitzer. So I'm happy to have, at least have won the poor man's Pulitzer. So that, that one really was meaningful to me. And it also, you know, these awards, there's a reason why I have won a number of awards is because I very I've very actively applied for them. So if there's any, okay. uh, you know, younger journalists listening to this, scrape your money together and apply for those awards because if you win one, you can kind of hang your hat on that. If you're just trying to get clicks and notoriety from writing about Southeast Asia, you may have picked the wrong line of work. This is still seen in the West as a as kind of a fringe part of the world. It doesn't get enough attention. People are still confused about Thailand and Taiwan. So, <laughs> you know, this isn't yeah. th this isn't the Middle East, which always has that intense 
gaze upon it. Um, the awards, the awards make up for the lack of clicks and attention, or they can. Right, right. Okay. Well, uh, Patrick, where should people go to learn more about you and the work you do? The thing I would most like people to do if they're if they're interested in what I've been talking about, is just just go to Amazon and um, buy Hello Shadowlands. Um, just look it up. You'll find it. It's on Kindle. It's on paperback. If you are in Thailand, you can get it at Kinukuniya or Asia Books. If you just want to know about me in general, uh, you can go to patrickwinonline.com. It's got my bio there and some of my work. And right. if I could just throw a curveball in there, I often get asked, um, so I've read about some of the stuff that you report on. What should I do? Mm-hmm. I never have a great answer for that, but just what comes to mind right now, um, go to uh, Doctors Without Borders or MSF and consider donating specifically to their program to help uh, the Rohingya who've been purged from from Myanmar into Bangladesh. Uh, I have had personal experience seeing uh, Doctors Without Borders in those really, really atrocious camps and really atrocious conditions, especially tending to women who've been um, assaulted by Burmese troops. That's not a bad place to put your money if you're looking for something, okay. if you're looking to do, if you, if you feel like you need to do something, because a lot of my work is, um, it can be a bit of a downer. I mean, North Korean bank heist, that's pretty exciting stuff. Some of the right. other stuff is, um, it's a bit dispiriting, so. That's that's a great piece of advice, man. And uh, on Twitter, you're at P-W-I-N-N-5. That's right? That's it. Yep. Okay. Well, really, really appreciate you making time uh, to chat with us, uh, Patrick, and sharing your story. And you know what? I am going to go get that book, and I'm going to drive over to your house one day now that I know where you live <laughs> and get you to sign it. Awesome. I'll be waiting out front. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. Bye-bye. Okay. You know it's funny listening to you talking with Patrick uh, that he first focused on writing about organized crimes and drugs and, and criminals, things like that. And that's something that, uh, you know, I was aware of when I first moved to Southeast Asia, that there were there's severe drug laws and, and whatnot. Um, but I never really thought about, you know, the organized crime behind it or, or thought about the individuals who, who perpetrate it. And that's kind of interesting that he took that kind of angle. Yeah, I mean... I admire it. And in many ways, I'm surprised he seems to have gotten through unscathed to this point, because I, I mean, a lot of these organizations lead to then government organizations and so forth. And from looking at his website and the tales he told, like, I'm really surprised he hasn't encountered anything really bad, you know, has happened to him. And that's great. And I hope it doesn't. But it's surprising. Yeah, you know, the other thing I, I got as a takeaway was I, I really appreciated kind of how humble he is. Uh, at one point, he mm. said that he felt that he would never truly understand Myanmar or some of these other destinations. And, and it seemed like the fact that he's really curious and interested in learning more about these destinations makes it more likely that he'll continue to create interesting stories about these destinations that he's already become very familiar with. Yeah, indeed. And I'm shocked that he hasn't, say, been banned from a place like Myanmar because, I mean, he's reported on all kinds of crazy things there. And it just seemed like that would get you banned or blacklisted from the country. So he's not, which is 
a serious shock, especially some of the stuff he's ca- uh, covered in the Kachin area in the far northeast. And, you know, I was quite, uh, as we live in Thailand, or I live in Thailand, to hear about the brothels and that um, bombing in, in that area in, in the far south of Thailand. Like, that was pretty heart-wrenching as well. Mm. You know, it might be because, like, he mentioned, like, that he didn't say it was a philosophy, but I felt like his philosophy and reporting was to, like, quote, do a net good in the world. And then he wants to bring people to these places that he's lucky enough to venture to. And so, like, even when he was talking about, like, these criminals or these people, he sounds very empathetic. Like, he he wants to take people to these people or expose, like, what they're really like, what their real motives, and, and show that they're, like, human as well, you know, so that he's talking about people as much as the destinations in, in a way that, like, is very open-minded. Yeah, I, I was kind of knocked out by completely no negativity, right? Like, here's a guy that lives here, still seems to love living here, loves traveling the region. And yeah, just views all these people as people, which they are, I guess, you know, everyone is human and they all have needs. And and yeah, he seemed extremely well balanced. And it's well worth going to his website, which is on our show notes as well, because, uh, you know, he has some other pretty cool stories about North Korea and so forth. So definitely visit his web page uh, for sure. So yeah, I really enjoyed talking to him. Fascinating guy. Yep. I had did my homework before, uh, you know, doing the intro and the outro here with you, Scott. So I definitely agree mm. that people should go and have a look at our show notes at talktravelasia.com and click on some of the links to have a look at some of his work. And, uh, you know, I look forward to, to following him uh, in the future. Yeah, indeed. And just the final thing before uh, you take us out of this, Trevor, is remember again, please help sponsor the show, help lighten the financial load on Trevor and I, because we pay for all this out of our own pockets. Go to patreon.com, search talktravelasia.com, or click the donate button on the left side of our homepage. And you can sponsor us from a dollar or more per month and help keep things going. So Trevor, why don't you take us out of this thing? Yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Sorry I wasn't feeling so well last time when we recorded this one, but I will certainly be back for big episode number 100 coming up. So we hope that you'll join us in a couple of weeks. uh, And thank you again for listening. Uh, Scott, thanks again for joining me and uh, happy travels, everyone. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom and Cambodia?